This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Artica. Artica is a publisher, but it's actually much more. A place where books become art. A publisher that specialises in creating artisanal books together with the very best, most internationally renowned artists, managing to elevate different artistic disciplines to another level. If you'd like more information about Artica or its collection of artworks, go to articabooks.com to discover books transformed into authentic works of art. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about the artists, writers, musicians and other cultural figures that have shaped their lives and work and the experiences that have changed the way they see the world. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Glenn Ligon, who works across various media from painting to film and neon to produce powerful ruminations on contemporary politics, culture and African-American identity. Glenn was born in the Bronx in New York in 1960 and studied at the Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Then, in the early 1980s, his work was inspired particularly by artists from the post-war New York school like Willem de Kooning. But a year spent on the hugely influential independent study programme at the Whitney Museum of American Art helped prompt a shift in his art. Ultimately, language was the path into his mature work and he began including text in his paintings. It remains the key element of his works today. In the mid to late 1980s, Glenn used stenciled words from diverse sources, including art criticism and novels, in reflecting upon what it meant to be an African-American man and artist in a febrile moment in the US amid the 1980s culture wars and radical shifts in the New York art world. A key work from that period is the 1991 painting Untitled I Am an Invisible Man, in which he used oil stick to stencil lines from the prologue of the 1955 Ralph Ellison novel Invisible Man, which is the story of an African-American man growing up in the southern US in the mid-20th century onto paper. As the text moves down the surface, it becomes increasingly blurred and messy through the sticky stenciling process, perfectly reflecting Glenn's ideas on the slipperiness and elusiveness of language and meaning. He continues to work using the same techniques with a variety of texts today, and has added coal dust to the surface, a technique he explains later. As well as using potent texts in his work, Glenn also uses found imagery. For his contribution to the seminal and enormously influential 1993 Whitney Biennial, he appropriated Robert Maplethorpe's photographs of black male nudes, more of which later, and he's also used images, for instance, of the historic Nation of Islam's Million Man March in Washington, D.C. His work using text found a natural extension into the world of neon, and some of his best-known and most powerful works use the medium of light, again with quotes from literary sources, but perhaps most famously with works spelling out America in black neon in different formations, sometimes straight, sometimes mirrored, sometimes reversed. Glenn's bodies of works in different media diversify the forms his art takes but emphasise the consistency of his language and subject matter. I'm always struck by his economy and directness on the one hand and the work's capacity for profound meaning on the other. It makes him, I think, one of the great artists of our time. Among his longest-running groups of paintings is his series Stranger, which he started in 1997. It features excerpts from James Baldwin's 1953 essay Stranger in the Village, in which the American writer uses his experiences in a remote Swiss village to reflect on the nature of blackness, African-American culture and white supremacy, among much else. In a new work made for an exhibition at Hauser & Wirth in Zurich this September, Glenn has for the first time stenciled the entire Baldwin text with oil stick onto a painting, which is almost 14 metres wide and 3 metres high. And it's this with which I began our conversation. Given that this is Glenn's first show in Switzerland, was it irresistible to turn again to Baldwin's seminal essay?
actually, I'm at the end of an investigation around Baldwin's essay, Stranger in the Village. I've been working with the text off and on for about 20 years now, uh, but I'd never used the entire text of the essay. And so given the space of Hausenwurst Gallery in Switzerland, its location in the country, it seemed an opportunity to present this work that I was already making, uh, which is uh, a very large painting or cycle of paintings, 10 by 45 feet that use the entire text of that essay. So in an odd way, it's, it's, it was a great opportunity coming at the end of an investigation. Can you tell me something about the physicality of doing that? Because as you say, it is the entire text. And that seems to me, both as a physical process, extremely demanding. But these are really powerful words, too. It's such a powerful text. Can you say something about that experience? Are you able to, are you, as you are making the work, thinking very carefully about those words as well as the sort of practical realities of translating them into, you know, using this very complicated technique that you use? Well, not so complicated, actually. It's just stenciling, you know, the text in oil stick through plastic letter stencils, one letter at a time, going from the top left to the bottom right. So in some ways, it's, it's quite procedural in a way. It's what you need to do is laid out for you. The, the, the thing is that stenciling a text does not make a painting. It just makes a stenciled text. And so the difficulty is figuring out, you know, on that scale, which is the largest scale of paintings I've ever made, what makes that a painting versus Baldwin's text? They're not the same thing. And so trying to answer that question is the interesting or, or difficult part. But there is a sort of labor, you know, you're, you're stenciling over and over and over again, you know, uh, a text that I know very well now um, in some ways, but like any text keeps, you know, revealing itself. That's the richness of this essay. It's only, you know, I don't know, eight pages in printed form, 10 pages, but it continues to hold my interest, continues to have a certain relevance and resonance. But also I'm making paintings in a different moment now. When I started out, Baldwin, I think, you know, arguably, you know, one of the best known of American writers, but had fallen out of favor at a certain point. In the, and now Baldwin is everywhere, you know, <laughs> he's quoted everywhere. Um, and so that's the context in which this investigation is happening in, where people have much more of an understanding of Baldwin's work, his life, what he tried to do, and find his words relevant, uh, newly relevant. I remember when I was an art student, I was telling one of my fellow art students that all the difficult texts that we had to read in that program, I found a bit of, you know, headbanging. And so I, in some ways, as a kind of palate cleanser, I was reading James Baldwin essays, and she turned to me and said, who's that? And it wasn't a shock that she hadn't read Baldwin. The shock was that she had never heard the name. That is indeed shocking. But one of the things that was made clear to me as I was prepping for this interview and 
looking again at that text was how it's consistently renewed. As you say, you've returned to it again. And, and, and obviously with the events of last year, with George Floyd's murder, etc., the notion of white supremacy had never gone away, but it's so prevalent now. And it seems to me that, as you say, it's a body of work you've been making for some time, but it's, it's, it gains a new currency, it gains a new um, vitality each time you're making this body of work and re- returning to it. Well, yeah, as I said before, it's like reading a good piece of you know, literature, a good, a good text, an essay, where you're a different person and you read it over time, the society changes, your relationship to it changes, it keeps giving. You know, and I think Baldwin has consistently done that. And despite him going in and out of, you know, focus and favor, I think the work has really stood up over time. And his example has stood up over time of what a writer could be, you know. Of course, in, in your Whitney catalogue um, from 2011, there was an essay by Hilton House in that catalogue, which, which in a way challenged that text. And that's just as important, too, because it, it challenged its erasure of Baldwin's queerness. So c- can you say something about that? But obviously, that was Hilton House's take on that essay and its relation to your work. But that also spoke a lot about your work. Well, yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting about, you know, that essay is as panoramic as it is, it does not speak about certain things. He was at the chalet of the family of of his current lover. Uh, He does not mention that in the essay. So queerness does not become part of what he writes about in the essay, though his queerness, I, I would argue, infuses his experience in that village this tiny Swiss village in the mountains in the 1950s and his experience of blackness as, and his experience of queerness, I think, are inseparably joined. But I think it's fine to have these critiques of Baldwin. I'm critical of Baldwin too. There's a lovely essay by Teju Cole written recently where he talks about going to the little village that Baldwin was in and and noting that, you know, the world has changed, you know. <laughs> Black American music is black culture, you know, <laughs> is world culture now. And so that's what's on the radio in the, in the restaurant, in the hotel he's staying in, you know. There are African Americans there. Uh, he also takes Baldwin to task for his lack of imagination around African culture, you know. There's a sort of line in the essay where Baldwin says, you know, these villagers have a relationship to Beethoven and Bach, you know. I imagine myself, if I lived in a little African village at the time, waiting for the conquerors to arrive. Well, he says it with no sense that Africa has a cultural tradition, a history, civilizations, you know. So that is Baldwin's failure. So I think it, it, is, it is my task not only to work with Baldwin's essay, but also to be critical of it in some sense, too. You know, how that comes out in the work is a different different matter. But, you know, I, I don't read it uncritically. Again, you're talking about the sort of physicality of making the work and about those moments where um, the, the decisions that come into your choice of medium for a particular work or a particular subject. Because, of course, there are the neon pieces where your own hand isn't necessarily so directly involved. And then there are others where you're so physically making the work into, in the stenciling. Can you say something about that? Which kind of works need the, the particular kinds of attention, the level of um, direct physical engagement? Well, painting 
needs a direct physical engagement, even if it's a bit distance because it's not my handwriting. You know, I'm stenciling something, and that stenciling process is messy because I'm using oil paint, you know, in a stick form, but still it's oil paint through letter stencils. It's not a clean process, but that's what the work is, that sort of messiness, uh, the interface between my hand, the oil stick, and the stencil is what the paintings are about. And then the addition of this material coal dust, which came about really by thinking about Baldwin. You know, Baldwin, in, not in this essay, but another essay, talks about the disesteemed and how, in a certain way, being positioned at the margins of the culture lets you understand the culture better. You see it more clearly. And that is the position he takes as an artist. And when I ran across this material, coal dust, which is literally left over from coal processing, it's used for sandblasting and road fill. It's a construction material. It's waste material. And somehow, but it's this shiny black gravel. And the elevation of that you know, waste material into the space of a painting that's using Baldwin's words seemed to me appropriate to his transformation of this positionality that he situates himself in you know but the physical part of it is is intense you know <laughs> as i said these are the biggest paintings i've ever made and they're they're generated simply because i wanted to use the entire essay you know at a certain font size that takes up 10 by you know 45 feet so the the painting's size is determined by the size of the typeface basically and the number of words but it took months to stencil that text you know over and over again to make it into a painting and then it took another couple of months to you know sort of sit with it go back into it try to figure out like well what is this thing you know as resource, I was looking at a lot of different things. Jack Witten's work, abstract American painter who I love. He has a beautiful painting that was up at Museum of Modern Art called uh, Atopolis. And I go back and, you know, make pilgrimages. When I was younger, I used to go to make pilgrimages to look at de Kooning paintings. Now I go make pilgrimages to look at Jack Witten. But I was also looking at Monet's water lilies and thinking about them and scale and sort of thinking about them too as this sort of panorama because the painting that I'm making because of its scale and because of its someone described kind of weather in it you know it seems to be somehow landscape cloudscape it's it it seemed kind of related to this idea of the panorama and and so the water lilies that series was very instructive for me. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Okay. And I think you may have partly answered this question already, but but let's see. Um, who was the first artist whose work you loved? Well, it actually wasn't de Kooning. I think that was learned love. Um, <laughs> maybe more immediate love was when I was a kid, uh, I lived in the South Bronx, and my mother sent me to a private school on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and it was across the park from the Metropolitan Museum. 
And so I'd go to the Metropolitan Museum on my own when I was 13, 14, 15, and do sketches in the galleries. And often it would be after French landscape painting, so particularly Cezanne. So I have notebooks from that time filled with sketches of Cezanne paintings. Like I'd never been on an airplane, I'd never been to France. But somehow the idea of drawing after these landscapes in the paintings was sort of travel without movement, I suppose, you know, of wanting to be somewhere. But also I loved his work, still do. There's an amazing show up right now in New York of Cezanne drawings, and they've been a revelation for me. When you were working directly from the Cezannes, because obviously in those days, as you say, you're just discovering art. Were you conscious how radical his language was, how different it appeared to some of the paintings around it, for instance? No, I wasn't a good art history student at that point, but I knew there was something different about his work than other paintings I was seeing just because of the amount of white space in them. Their quote-unquote unfinish was interesting to me. It had nothing to do with the work that I was making for, you know, my art classes at the time, or but um, there was, it, it, the work kept drawing me to it, so I knew something was important. It's the same way that I knew when I was, I guess, later on in high school. I went to Soho on a class trip, and we saw Andy Warhol's shadow paintings. I didn't know what the hell they were about, but I knew it was important that I was seeing that somehow. And that wasn't a beloved series at the moment. You know, everybody was interested in the pop work. So the shadow paintings and my attachment to them and my puzzling over them was, was curious given, you know, they weren't the sort of iconic images that one imagines of Warhol. No, no, not at all. And I guess they've obviously just re- recently, in a way, not this is probably too strong a word, but been rehabilitated through that Dia show. How did you, did you did you see that, and how did you feel when you confronted them again in that in that volume that they were showing? Oh, I've been. They're another, you know, one of those series that I keep making pilgrimages to. So I've seen them in various incarnations, both in New York City and at Dia, uh, which is upstate New York. And I think there's much to learn from them. You know, Warhol called them disco decor, um, which I think, you know, is, is cheeky and funny. But I think they are mysterious in an interesting way. And they are full of surprises. Color-wise, he was always a genius. You know, he, he basically used every crayon in the box, you know, uh, to great effect. But there's something elegiac about them, too. They're, they're paintings of nothing. They're paintings of shadows or paintings of the in-betweenness between things. You know, sort of, it's not the thing, but it's also a shadow has to be on something, you know. <laughs> Can't be just in the air. It has to land somewhere. So that sort of in-betweenness is sort of curious to me. Uh, the thingness and non-thingness. So Warhol was deep. <laughs> Even though he played the, you know, the savant, he was deep. <laughs> he, he was indeed. It leads me directly onto the next question, which is which historical artist do you turn to the most? I don't know if there's one in particular. I love Caravaggio. I go see them whenever I can when I'm in Europe. Another artist who was good at shadows. Yeah, good at shadows, yes. <laughs> and I love Titian. I mean, it's funny to say these things because on the face of it, my work has nothing to do with this 
work, uh, these painters, but I still am enthralled by them. And I guess if I think harder about them, these connections will become more clearer between my work and their work. But I would say those two, David Hammonds, uh, from a very early age. I have a sort of memory of him when I was a volunteer at the Studio Museum in Harlem uh, back in the 70s. He had a residency program. I don't know if he actually ever worked in the studio, but I saw him in the hallways. And he was just an extravagant kind of mesmerizing figure, a sort of model of what what an artist should be, you know. Partially he didn't work in the studios because his work was being made on the street. That's where the life was, you know. So he didn't need the studio except maybe to store things in. But the work was really coming from the street. So that was an early example for me of like what an artist could be. Yeah. And, and you wrote a very well-known essay about Hammonds's work, and, and and in fact, in which you brought in all sorts of other uh, really important artists, people like Judy Merity was mentioned in that text, right? Right. It was a way of thinking through Hammond's work, or particular, you know, piece by Hammond's called Concerto in Black and Blue, these again, empty spaces, again, <laughs> where you're the shadow because there's nothing in the space, but you and the, you know, you're in a darkened, huge gallery space, darkened with a little blue flashlight, throwing shadows around. That was the work. But thinking about that in relationship to younger uh, artists like Julie Moretto, uh, uh, and Julie has talked about her relationship to Hammonds too, you know, so mm. I wasn't far-fetched in my, my <laughs> analysis or, you know, my thoughts about the connection between. He's had a deep influence, I think, on a whole couple of generations of artists not just one generation of artists absolutely and is it right that thinking about that piece led you to think about neons because you had this workshop near your studio or beneath your studio but but thinking about light and 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 Hammonds's work actually prompted you to think about how you might be able to make work with neon well yes I think that was one of the prompts Hammonds worked with light So it got me thinking about it. But, you know, so much of my work has been text-based. It seemed, like, obvious, you know, (laughs) that I should be working in neon, but I just had never done it uh, until I had this sort of fateful encounter with Matt Dilling, who runs a neon shop called Lightbright Neon, has made all of the neons I've ever made. (laughs) And he invited me into the shop one day, and we were talking about neon works he makes works for artists and commercial things and I made a joke Um, well I make black text so what about black neon and he said black is the absence of light (laughs) Uh, and I agreed Uh, but then we talked about it and he showed me an ad uh, he'd done for Burberry's that was in neon reproducing their plaid I guess and it has a black stripe in it and he showed me that he just took a white neon tube and painted it black on the front. So it read as a black line, but also read as neon, so that it could be in the display window. And when I saw that black stripe, I thought, that's it. <laughs> so the first neon piece we made was a little fragment of a Gertrude Stein called uh, Negro Sunshine from a book called Three Lives, rendered in white neon, painted black on the front. 
I mean, it's obvious they are literally painted black, but do you see them as continuations of the paintings in that sense? Is it too neat to say that they somehow, that is a direct relation rather than just a practical concern to make the neon black? Uh, uh, well, I think it is, it is direct in the sense um, that all of my work, I think, has been about, in some ways, taking text to a kind of abstraction. So the art, you know, you know, the or the work, I should say, the work of stenciling, not the art of stenciling, the work of stenciling over and over again on the same letters takes those letter forms to a kind of abstraction. They became more difficult to read and more abstracted. And I think in some ways, putting black on the face of this neons, even though they're perfectly legible to me, they seem somehow eclipsed or hidden. You know, I remember someone asking me, standing in front of the one of my neons that's in America that had black painted letters saying, oh, can you still read the neon when the neon is off? And I thought about it for a minute or two. And then I said, yes, <laughs> it's still, <laughs> the letters are still the letters of America. But I thought, oh, it's so interesting that just the addition of this black paint makes this thing very mysterious, makes it somehow like, almost impossible to read, even though it's quite legible, you know. So I, I'm sort of curious about, you know, that, that simple sort of trick in a way, you know, and how much work that does, just the blackening of those letter fronts. Indeed. And it also allows you also to riff in the way that you have done throughout your career on the work of other artists. And, you know, Nauman is the obvious example. And in fact, you directly quoted 100 Live or Die in one of your works, right? Right. And so Nauman definitely uh, was a big influence. Um, his plays with language, the way he uses language as material has always been interesting to me, and so these American neons, which are all flipped and you know turned to the wall and things, I think come out of partially thinking about language, but also thinking about you know as a Black American, my relationship to the idea of this country, and always being in in somewhat of a tangential or marginal relationship to this country at the same time being central, as I talked about black music before. You know, when one thinks about American music, I think one, one could argue that black music, black culture is American culture. And so this peculiar position of being marginalized and central at the same time. Uh, so it was one of those things I was thinking about in relationship to the neons is how to take this word that we think we know everything about and make it unfamiliar. And, and I was reading the Whitney catalogue essay whilst Afghanistan was being taken over again by the Taliban and it was written at a time quite soon after the Iraq war and it was pointed out that one of the things that that piece does is it both shows America as, as the darkness of America, but America as a kind of guiding light and that, and that sort of duality that has constantly governed America's recent history. And it seems to me that it's always relevant in the case of American politics. It, that, that piece just retains its relevance throughout. Well, yeah, so I think, I mean, flattering of you to say, um, one doesn't know the fate of a work, you know, and it's how its meanings will be used. But I think one thing has been interesting to me is one of those American neons has been in the lobby of the Whitney Museum here in New York for about 
five or six years. I thought they were going to put it up for six months, but it has stayed up. And as you said, it has stayed up in the midst of, you know, these constant conflicts that American troops have been involved in or withdrawn from across the globe. And America is a complicated thing, you know. Uh, it is a, you know, city on the hill, shining beacon, and also the Death Star. It's, it's both things at the same time. And so that kind of ambivalence of that word, you know, what it means here in America, what it, it's the use it's been put to, what it means globally, you know, is one of the things I'm interested in in, in that series. Um, we talked about de Kooning. I'd, I'd like to talk to you a bit about Pirate because this moment with Pirate was quite an, an important moment to you in the sort of development of your life. So Pirate is a work in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, right? Right, right. It's a piece that I kept going to make, you know, sort of pilgrimages as a young art student. Um, and I had a strange relationship to the painting. I mean, I loved abstract expressionism, you know, Pollock, Klein, uh, all of those people were important influences on me. But particularly at that moment, de Kooning's Pirate, because it partially because it was up a lot at the Museum of Modern Art, I would go and visit it and stand in front of it. And it would, over a couple of minutes, seem to get brighter and clearer to me. And I took that for meaning it was sort of transmitting its meaning to me, you know, <laughs> uh, in a kind of quasi-mystical way. And then later on, I realized that I needed glasses. And so when I got glasses, I had a very strange experience walking out of a optometry shop in New York and thinking, oh my God, I can see so clearly. And then looking around and thinking, New York is the ugliest, dirtiest city <laughs> ever ever seen in my life, <laughs> now that I see it. <laughs> um, but I went back to the modern, and that thing, that mystical transmission of the painting's meaning to my brain, to my eyes, did not happen. And it was, and my optometrist said, oh, it's because your eyes take a moment to focus when you're not wearing glasses. But when you wear glasses, everything's in focus. And so that thing that happened didn't happen. So it doesn't diminish my admiration of the painting, but it just changed my relationship to what I imagined art could do, you know. Um, there was a very important work, it seems to me, that you made, which was called Notes on the Margins of the Black Book, where you effectively annotated Robert Maplethorpe's work. Can you say something about that? Well, I guess I encountered Maplethorpe's work in the 80s, uh, particularly interested in a book called The Black Book, which was a collection of his uh, photographs of black men, often nude, often sexualized. And it was an, a sort of strange time because for a young black artists trying to find their voice, trying to enter the art world, I would say that the, you know, the images of black men that I was seeing in museums and galleries were Maplethorpe's. Uh, because there was controversy around the work, you know, because there were big exhibitions on. He, in some ways, had the sort of lock on black representation, even though there you know, hundreds and hundreds of other examples I could have gone to to see images of black people. His, were, his images were the ones circulating in museum spaces, being written about, being discussed on the floors of Congress, you know, in terms of censorship and arts funding. 
And so I felt like I needed to take on that work in some ways, but I'm, I'm not a photographer. I rarely make figurative work. So my take on it was to gather the text, sort of create a critical dialogue around that work and make that the work. So display Maplethorpe's photographs cut directly from Black Book mounted on the wall and run them with 90 or so quotes from various uh, scholars like Cabana Mercer, Stuart Hall, Bell Hooks, but also people who were right-wing, you know, and critical of Maplethorpe, uh, ex-senator named Jesse Helms, right-wing religious commentators, you know, sort of juxtapose the reins of positions around Maplethorpe's work and sort of using that to let the viewer work through, you know, what they thought about those images. So not erase the images, but put up the critical dialogue around the images with the images. So that's that's what that piece was about for me. And, and what kind of reception did you get to that from, it, like, from the people around Maplethorpe, as it were, from gallerists, from those? Was it was it was it in some ways welcomed or was it resisted? Well, as everything, welcomed and resisted. You know, when I showed the work for the second time, uh, showed in in an expanded form in the nineteen ninety three Whitney Biennial. I had to sign a contract with the Maplethorpe's Foundation about the creation of the work. And that contract was very strict. You know, <laughs> the, the lawyer for the foundation, Michael Stout, who's a friend, did his job well. You know? So there is only one of those pieces and has every time it's reproduced, I technically have to get permission from the Maplethorpe Foundation first. But he allowed me to do it because the irony of him censoring a young black artist doing a critique of Maplethorpe's work was not lost on him. And so to their credit, you know, because they had certainly sued other people who had used Maplethorpe's images. And the it's a charitable foundation. So the licensing of those images goes out to arts organizations in the forms of grants. So, you know, it's not simply about money for the foundation. It's a, it's a charitable organization. So... Um, so there was that, but then there's also, you know, outside of the art world response to it, what was interesting or most interesting about the piece was interviewing people who had actually sat for some of the photographs and realizing for some of them it was seeing the photographs in retrospect. One of the models says, you know, I look at the photos and I look like a freak. And then says, well, at the same time, that's, you know, Maplethorpe's interest in and taking of these photographs was a way of you know, putting my body out in the world in a way that it hadn't been. So this kind of ambivalence about his own representation. But but for other people, it was just, he shot my photograph and paid me some money, and that was that. It was not a big deal. And so that range became, range of responses to people, from people sitting for the photographs became part of the piece too. Because I imagine, like, you know, white photographer, black subject matter, unequal power relationships, therefore exploitative. But talking to the men themselves, one realized, like, no, much more complicated story than I imagined. And so that complicated story has to be in the piece as well, you know. So to erase the complication of that story is another kind of erasure, you know. 
This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Artica, a publisher that creates art with each of its publications. Artica specialises in developing unique artist books that propose new readings of the bodies of work of major artists across history. They create books that seem to be chiselled into sculptures, written on canvases or etched with the artist's intimate thoughts. Books that are works of art in themselves, thanks to the meticulous artisanal production process with which they've been created and the innovative concept behind each one. From Vincent van Gogh to Pablo Picasso to Jaime Plenza, Salvador Dali, Anthony Gaudí, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec and most recently Frida Kahlo. With this latest release containing Carlo's most intimate and personal drawings, Artica offers a never-before-seen glimpse into the private world of the iconic Mexican painter. Check out this and other limited edition works by Artica at articabooks.com and discover books transformed into art. Next question is about museums. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Let's see. Well, when I was a kid, the Met, um, because it was, you know, across the park from my high school. Studio Museum in Harlem, because I had an internship there and met a lot of artists there. I wasn't even thinking that I was an artist at that point. I thought I wanted to be a curator and... Um, that didn't quite work out. But I think the contact, because it's Studio Museum, they literally had artist residencies in the building. And so I saw kind of what artists did, you know. Um, so that was kind of quite inspiring and had shows there. Uh, one of my great friends, Thelma Golden, is the director of the museum. So I've had long relationship with the Studio Museum. And the Whitney uh, where I had a retrospective uh, a couple of years ago, has the largest, I would say, collection of my work in the United States. Know all the curators, know all, all the guards, you know, <laughs> by name. <laughs> it's a place I go to over and over again. So I think those are the three. But whenever I travel around, I try to go to as many museums as I can go to. And so that's always exciting to discover new works by, you know, just going to whatever the local museum is. Do you, do you find yourself going on pilgrimage whilst abroad? You talked about how you would go to pilgrimages in New York in your home city, but do you also do that when you're abroad? So do, do you have to visit certain works when you're in certain cities? Yeah, I think every time I'm in London, I end up at um, the British Museum to see the African collection there become recently interested in Korean ceramics, visiting the moon jars, <laughs> again, at the British Museum. I have a godson in Japan. He lives in Hokkaido now, but so he and his parents got me very into Raku. And so when I have a chance to visit Kyoto, I go to the Raku Family Museum and just kind of soaking up, you know, ceramics, particularly Japanese ceramics, um, but also Korean ceramics too, and have made some ceramic works in Japan with a, a Korean ceramicist. So, you know. <laughs> How wonderful. Yeah, sort of a, a lot of cross-cultural thinking about ceramics is interesting to me. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? You know, I think it was really going to, going to Japan for the first time. Because I think, you know, Americans are, are generally very ill-traveled. 
<laughs> we don't speak very many languages. We, we travel to the same places. We don't like to get lost. We don't like to have experiences in some ways. We want to be places, but we don't really want to experience them. So the first time I went to Japan was for an exhibition at a small gallery called Rat Hole in Tokyo. And the people that ran the gallery, unbeknownst to me, decided I was the one. <laughs> and so when they had their son, Luca, um, they, they asked me if it would be okay if his middle name was Glenn. And I said yes. So, you know, to go someplace where you're deep in, where your feet kind of never really have to touch the ground because they've thought of everything, they've, they've thought of experiences you would like, food you want to eat, temples you want to visit, artists you might want to know, you know. So that was an amazing trip. But also, I think what was amazing was to understand, you know, also as an American, we don't understand that, that people are very happy in their lives. <laughs> and somehow we think that American culture is culture and that there's no other way of being. It's like, no, people are very happy in their lives, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but also that the way people live, if you live in a culture, you grew up in a culture, things that happen there are quite naturalized. You don't see them anymore. So at one moment, um, my friend Caroline, Luca's mom, was handing me something. And I said, Caroline, do you realize that everything you hand me is on a tray, even if the tray is not physically there? And she's like, what are you talking about? It's like, you just don't see it anymore. But there's this sort of notion of hospitality, you know. I'm a crude American. Hand somebody something, just hand it to them. There it's either literally on a tray or symbolically on a tray, you know? So there's this kind of, you know, elegance about the guest, you know, and how the guest should be treated. So short example, we were in a taxi going to a restaurant and there was a short walk between the parking lot and the restaurant door. The driver gets out. He's wearing white gloves and a hat in his immaculate taxi, gets out and runs to the door of the restaurant. And I look at Caroline and I say, why is he running? Oh, because it's drizzling a little bit and we're a little bit early, so he wants to see if the restaurant is open. No, why is he running? Oh, because we're waiting. And it was so natural to her that that is how you treat a guest that I thought no cab driver in New York has, A, ever gotten out of their cab to, you know, to see if a restaurant was open for you, and B, ran to the door. Like, it has never happened in life. But she didn't see it, you know, because that is so natural in the culture, you know. So that was a fascinating lesson. This is a subject to which I, I think we're going to be dwelling on for some time. Which writers or poets do you return to? Well, Baldwin, obviously, over and over again. You know, that's kind of a hard question, actually, because <laughs> there are a lot of people. Um, well, this is quite an interesting one, in a way, because I suppose just because you make work from texts doesn't mean that you return to those texts a lot. So, for instance, you know, how important to you is Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man now? Obviously, it's been significant in terms of the, your body of work, but it, I guess it doesn't necessarily mean that you return to Ralph Ellison. That's true. I haven't read that. You know, that novel, I think, wasn't very important early on, as was Zora Neale Hurston's writings, Toni Morrison's writings. But you're right. In terms of Ellison, I made work using that text from Invisible Man very early on in my career, but I haven't returned to it, whereas Baldwin I've returned to. And so, yeah, there's a difference in authors in that sense of ones I 
ones were important, you know, were important, and ones that, you know, whose works I keep returning to over and over again. There are some writers newer to me, uh, Glissant, whose essays I've just started to dive into. He's a name that's been floating around for a long time, but I'd really never read the work so much. So I've been, you know, sort of diving into that work now and thinking it through. Stuart Hall, I think, was enormously important. I met him probably the first time I came to London uh, through great friends, the artist Isaac Julian and the curator Mark Nash. And I didn't know that one could meet someone like Stuart Hall, that he would just be around at a dinner. You know? <laughs> it's sort of astonishing to me. So that was super important. And his work has over time, again, been things that I've returned to over and over again. And there's a brilliant, brilliant uh, meditation on him by the filmmaker John Acumphra mm. that I keep looking at as well. I mentioned Toni Morrison again, but I've just discovered that she narrated a lot of her books so the, the audio guides, um, if you don't read the books, you can get audio guides where she reads them. Oh, wow. Are, and she has an amazing, amazing voice. It's particularly the later novels because it, she started out doing them for tape, you know, books on tape. But to read a long novel on tape is kind of impossible. It would be, you know, dozens of cassettes. So they're abridged. So if you go to the audio recordings, so the sort of digital recordings, there you can get the whole novel. Um, so it's kind of amazing to hear her. She passed away many years ago, but it's amazing to hear her voice, you know, and hear how she inhabits her characters. One thing I wanted to ask about was Gertrude Stein, and I wondered how much appreciation you have for her writing, because obviously it plays a problematic role, that text that you've quoted from in your work. Yeah, I think Stein is interesting because of, you know, experiments with language and I think an influence in that sense, that language is a material you can play around with, twist, distort, repeat, you know, and those have been important ways of working for me. But, you know, in that text, Three Lives, in the section Melanchtha, that describes the lives of these black people, She's quite brutal, you know, her descriptions of them. You know, these are not loving descriptions of black culture or black people. But I think I use it because as a consumer of these texts that don't imagine me as a consumer, I've always had to read around them, you know. So there, the the word Negro sunshine, you know, those two words, Negro sunshine. Now, she doesn't mean them in a positive way. It's a stereotype. Black people are happy. They're smiling all the time. That's what that's about, you know. But taken out of the context of Stein and put into another context, it becomes something else. And that something else is what I'm interested in. You know, that reading around or rereading or reading against the intended meanings of that text, you know. I mean, to give it to Stein, I'm, you know, Negro was a polite word in the 20s. So in some ways, that was progressive, her use of that word. But if you read, you know, the descriptions of her characters, or you think about her disinterest in their interior lives or her lack of imagination about their interior lives and motivations, you know, it's brutal. It's brutal reading, but it's reading that I've read around in some ways to make the work. 
and, and, and obviously there's a really interesting point that you make there in the sense that, you know, a viewer coming to your work may not, of course, know that Stein work they may not read the wall text or anything in that that signifies the sort of background to the work and you're okay with that right you're you're quite happy for the work to to meet the viewer unmediated as it were uh yeah because i think you know any work does that you know it kind of has to work without you know any viewer brings a sort of set of references and associations to it you know but I think, and the work becomes richer once you know kind of what the artist was thinking about, you know, the web of citations that are being made in the work, you know, that makes the work richer for me. It doesn't diminish the work, but I don't expect every viewer to do that, you know. I mean, in some ways, you know, technology has helped me because there is this thing called Google, you know. So if you type in Negro Sunshine, you'll get Stein, you know, it'll take you there. And that wasn't true 30 years ago. You know, that wasn't the norm, you know, for me. So when people ask me, well, I don't know your references, I do that little like, you know, pretending like I'm typing and then I hit send, you know, it's like, there it is, click, you know, if you do that for everything else, do it for my work, you know. There's one reference that I saw, which I wasn't expecting, actually, uh, that you made, to, which was Dickens and, uh, and A Tale of Two Cities in relation to the American neons. Tell me about that. Well, I was just thinking of, you know, best of times, worst of times. So that incredible the list of oppositions, you know, you know, at the beginning of Tale of Two Cities, or I don't know if what the literary term is exactly, but, you know, spring of enlightenment, winter of our discontent, you know, that both things can be true. And the first America neon was made, I think, in, in, you know, sort of the midst of the Gulf War, one of our, you know, endless wars, and thinking about, yes, our economy's booming, you know, we can have first African-American president, and we can be locking up people in Guantanamo Bay and in an endless war. And, you know, all of those things can be true simultaneously. And so I always thought that, you know, we've always been at that moment of this sort of ambivalence around this, you know, uh, what DeForest Brown Jr., a really great writer, theorist, musician, calls, you know, America's a failed startup. You know, it's, you know, <laughs> which I think is perfect. Yes, we're always like a startup and always failed, you know, in some senses. So with that promise that a startup has, but also the potential for catastrophic failure, you know. And so I think that's what those American neons were sort of, that's the context around which that work was made. And I think in some ways that's what they're about. Let's talk about music. What music or other audio do you listen to as you work? Well, to be truthful, I listen to a lot of public radio, you know, the news all day long. So the New York City public radio station, NYC. But I find it now very intrusive on the work. I get too angry. I can't <laughs> be yelling at the radio all day long. So I've been listening to a lot of 
jazz. Don Cherry in particular, because I did a film uh, for Biennale in Istanbul a couple of years ago that used a Don Cherry as a soundtrack, and I became really interested in the music overall. So people have been sending me recommendations of things to listen to. Uh, Sunny Sirac. I also listen to, you know, Aphex Twin. And I, I have a list of 10 songs that make me cry. And Chrissy Hines' version of um, I'll Stand By You makes me cry every time. (laughs) (laughs) So when I want to have a good cry, I put on that playlist, you know, there there are literally 10 songs, you know, Jesse Norman, (laughs) uh, Strauss's four last songs, you know, makes me cry every time. (laughs) That's great. I wanted to talk about Steve Reich, because of course, you've you've made the very important body of work around Come Out, which is this seminal Steve Reich piece. Tell me about what led you to that piece and, and and the work that you produced from it. Well, what was interesting about Steve Reich was I had been listening to him for, you know, decades. um, And that piece in particular come out um, from mid-60s, where he takes a testimony of a Daniel Hamm, who was one of the kids involved in a case called the Harlem Six, falsely accused of a murder in Harlem in the mid-60s, roughed up by the police, and he gives a testimony where he says he was beaten up, he was in the police station bleeding, but he had no visible bleeding, you know, he, he's bruised, you know. So he says, I had to open the bruise up to let some of the bruised blood come out to show them I was hurt and needed to go to the hospital. But when you listen to Steve Reich's piece, which has that fragment of Ham's testimony in it, you realize he makes a slip of the tongue. Instead of saying bruised blood, he says blues blood. And that sort of started me down a kind of rabbit hole thinking about, well, what is the relationship between bruising blood and the blues? You know, uh, Ralph Ellison says that the blues is personal catastrophe expressed lyrically. So this idea of trauma and transcendence that's in the blues, they're always connected, you know. There's always this sense of like, you know, my baby left me, the crops failed, but I'm moving on, you know. I'm hitting that train, I'm going, I'm transcending, I'm moving. And so somehow that slip of the tongue embodied something for me and sparked the idea of using come out as a text, you know, for paintings, cycle of paintings and neons as well. But also what's interesting to me is that, you know, Steve Reich wrote that piece as a benefit for the Harlem Six. It wouldn't have existed without that case. So, you know, one of the most famous pieces in his musical oeuvre comes from this case, but the history had been lost, you know. At a certain point, you could Google Harlem Six and you'd barely find anything, but you Google Steve Wright come out and there's lots and lots of articles. And so that kind of idea of resurrecting the original history around that composition was one of the things that propelled me to make a body of paintings using come out, but also uh, a set of neons as well. I also wanted to talk about your portrait of Stevie Wonder, which is you call self-portrait aged 11. So tell me about this, because Stevie's so important to me and is so uh, emblematic in my life. But in your work, you, you literally represent yourself as Stevie. Oh, well, it's, you know, how when you're young, you get obsessed with pop stars. They're who you want to be. 
So at a you know age eleven, age thirteen, I think it was somebody else. Age fifteen, you know. So sort of this idea that like this identification with the pop star is so intense that you imagine that they are you and you are them, and so that's what it's about. You know, this intense identification with someone,、um, and I find that particularly happens around musicians. You know, more than other figures. So at age eleven, Stevie was it for me. You know, I, he he was cool. He had great hair, you know, amazing singing voice, amazing musician. I have no musical talent at all, but I just identified with his politics, him as a person. He was it until someone else was it. You know, until <laughs> Prince was it, or you know, whomever. What other media influenced your work? Well, I don't know if I was such a hip hop fan, but I grew up in the South Bronx, and arguably the birthplace of it. But my mother, you know, sort of forbid me to go outside when there were these DJ parties in the parking lot downstairs. And she, what did she say? Hoodlum scratching up records, you know. <laughs> so I missed the birth of hip hop, even though it was outside. <laughs> um, but I'm really interested in. In its evolution, less about its lyrics, more about form. How it's able to, you know, the idea of sampling in hip hop, the mixing, how 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 songs are put together. You know, the kind of like incredible shifts, like the microclimates that you can make in one song. You know, that's commonplace in hip hop. That is fascinating to me, and always a challenge to the work I'm making, which. Tends to be, you know, if you're quoting a text, you're quoting a text. But how do you inject other things into the space of that text? You know, I mean, one could argue a text is, and it has already encapsulated, you know, shifts and wild and citations and wild leaps in it. You know, but maybe visually, when I'm making a painting out of it, that's somewhat suppressed. So it's trying to think about the, you know, the cut and mix of hip hop. Uh, as a as a methodology for working on my work, you know, so that's been enormously important. I mean, you've used film a certain amount, haven't you? Because in the work called Death of Tom, you used it. It was essentially a sort of recreation of a film which featured sort of blackface actors, and and you wanted to make a film, but it kind of got warped in the process of making. Right. It was my attempt to recreate the last scene of Uncle Tom's Cabin,、uh, Thomas Edison's version of it. So it was fascinating to think about in the beginning of cinema. These problematic texts, such as you know Uncle Tom's Cabin, are being used、uh, to make film to to develop the language of cinema, and these are silent versions with intertitles, you know, text that shows you kind of what's going on. But I realized like it's very hard to follow, you know, a silent film if you don't know the book. But I but but everyone in 1905. New Uncle Tom's Cabin was one of the bestsellers after the Bible, so it was a known text. So that was fascinating to me that Edison could make a twenty-three-minute version of Uncle Tom's text because everybody knew the story. You know,、uh, it was it was the subject of you know what they called Tom shows, traveling troops that would recreate scenes from Uncle Tom's Cabin around the country. So it's a perfect kind of. Thing to make a film of, but you know he uses a white actor to play Tom, the main protagonist, you know, of the film. In fact, there are lots of actors in blackface in it, 
except when they're singing and dancing, and then there's a, you know, real black people. So I was going to make this sort of recreation of the last scene of that film, and the film, as we were shooting it on 16-millimeter hand-crank camera, was all blurry and blown out. And I decided, well, all my work is, as I said before, about taking text to abstraction. This is the film version of that. It's a text, <laughs> Uncle Tom's Tabin, in film form, being taken to a kind of abstraction. And then I realized that I needed to add a musical accompaniment. So I asked a musician friend, Jason Moran, an incredible uh, piano player, if he would score it. And he's a genius. So he said, oh, I was doing a recording session. I had some extra time. So I just, you know, was at the piano and I played your film on my iPhone and just started playing. And I thought, yes, because you're a genius. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you can do that. <laughs> but what was interesting about him adding the score is he narrativized what is essentially an abstract film. And so that was sort of fascinating that the way he played around that film, as he said, played to the shadows of that film, gave it a kind of structure and narrative. So so that that was one of my first forays into film. But uh, yeah, it was sort of rethinking, you know, this sort of already in the world text, Uncle Tom's Cabin and its film version, and imagining how I might intervene in it, what I might add to it, or how might it appear new if I worked on it. And the accident of the film not coming out became the uh, happy accident of how that work got made. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as a kind of essential ritual? You know, in the pandemic, it's been, for a couple of months, I wasn't in my studio at all. Sort of for safety reasons, closed the studio down, so I was working at home. But I realised that I needed to keep working every day in in some form. So I started making these collages that I could make at the kitchen table, They're terrible. Nobody will ever see them. But it was a way of just working without a deadline, working on something, working in a new way. Uh, I was also making self-portraits, you know. Again, terrible. No one will ever see them. But, you know, uh, calling Dr. Freud, making self-portraits during a lockdown, you know, making collages that have pieces cut from magazines of people's bodies, you know. It was all about longing for a contact and seeing myself in the space where there was no contact. That's what it was about. And when we lifted a bit, you know, the lockdowns sort of lifted a bit, I went back to the studio and sort of resumed things with a new vigor, I think, but resumed the work that I was working on and put away all those collages and self-portraits. So you put them away, you haven't destroyed them? No, I haven't destroyed them. So maybe, you know, a couple of, I should never say never. Maybe in a couple of years, they'll come out of their flat files. You know, they'll be interesting to me. But I hope any curators listening are taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> if you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? Oh, that's an impossible question. Um, it's probably something by David Hammonds. And ironically, it, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, and this is kind of a perverse choice, Concerto in Black and Blue, which is literally 
empty dark rooms and you're given a little blue flashlight to walk around the space in. But you had to make the work, you know? Your interactions with other people walking around, your interactions with the space, you know, what you did with that little flashlight with the blue light, you know, that was the work. So I can imagine myself endlessly entertained by that to the end of days. <laughs> what a fantastic answer. That's great. The last question, what's art for? <sighs> I guess a couple of things, a way of thinking about the world for me. You know, I don't approach art as... I have an idea, I think it all through, and then I make the work to illustrate the idea. I make the work to think about the idea, to gather my thoughts. So maybe art is about gathering thoughts. Glenn, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much too. I've enjoyed it. Glenn Ligon, First Contact is at Hauser & Worth in Zurich from the 17th of September to the 23rd of December. And a big show opens at Hauser & Worth in New York on the 10th of November. And a new publication from Hauser & Worth Publishers is out this autumn. A show at the Carrier d'Al in Nîmes, France opens in 2022. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues, which is back on the 3rd of September. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcasts are Julia Mahalska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentle, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalla. Huge thanks to Glenn Ligon. We're back on the 15th of September with more episodes of A Brush With. See you then. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Artica. Go to articabooks.com to discover books transformed into authentic works of art. <laughs>